Uh, good afternoon. Welcome to Hudson Institute. Um, my name is Lee Smith. I'm a senior fellow here, and we have a wonderful panel here uh, to discuss uh, to discuss uh, very, some very timely events, both in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf Cooperation Council states, including some uh, some conflict in the region, and we'll be touching on a number of different things, which will include uh, different social and economic reform programs in Saudi, which I believe that uh, my colleague uh, uh, Fatim Bashan will be discussing uh, most. She is from the Arabia Foundation. To her right is Mohammed Yahya, and Mohammed has been here before on stage at Hudson, and he is a fellow at the Atlantic Council, and uh, I'm sure that you've seen his uh, his comments and his articles throughout the press. Uh, and to his right is my colleague, uh, Michael Pregent. And uh, Michael is a, a, a fellow here at Hudson as well. Um, we're going to go till about, uh, I'm just going to open it up for questions sometime around 110 or 115. If I can ask you, however, in the meantime, this is the first time it's occurred to me before a panel, if you would so kindly uh, turn off your phones or at least mute them so we don't have phones ringing during the middle of the very important uh, presentations that we have and even uh, the interesting conversation that we'll be having this afternoon. So again, thank you for coming and thank you to Hudson Institute for hosting us. Um, I believe that we uh, agreed that, Mohammed, you would, uh, you would lead us off. So thank you for being here and thanks for agreeing to lead off. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so now we're almost 50 days into this conflict where there's a rift in the Gulf Cooperation Council between the quartet of countries, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, uh, the UAE and Bahrain and Qatar. Uh, and I think there are some key points that um, are amiss when we're um, analyzing this problem. Uh, and one of them is that it's a long-standing conflict. Uh, it's been simmering for a while. There was an attempt to solve it in 2014, 2015, Riyadh agreements. And uh, what's happening today is best described as the relapse of those attempts. Uh, and I'll speak a little bit to, to what the dynamics are behind this conflict. So Qatar is a country with uh, only 313,000 citizens out of around 2 million uh, people as population. Um, that's a very small citizen population in comparison with the rest of the Gulf countries. It's actually the smallest Arab country in terms of citizen population um, uh, downright. Um, yet it has very high gas reserves. The GDP per capita in Qatar is the highest in the world. And if you were to calculate the GDP per citizen, um, Qataris are very well off. Uh, since 1995, when uh, the father of the current emir, Sheikh Khalifa bin Hamad al-Thani, uh, deposed his own father uh, in a bloodless coup, uh, Qatar has um, strived for political relevance uh, and for relevance around the world in general. We've seen Qatar uh, purchasing Harrods in the United Kingdom, uh, pumping around uh, over 40 billion pounds into the real estate market in, in, in um, England alone, in, in London alone, uh, and, and much more around Europe. Uh, you've seen Qatar buying 70% of Volkswagen. So the idea of putting Qatar on the map, of making Qatar a known entity internationally, has very much been at um, uh, the foundation of Qatari policy making. Uh, they also started to do this uh, uh, regionally and on, on a political level. Uh, they're invested in a conflict in Libya that's thousands of kilometers away from Qatar, despite Qatar's size, despite the limitations of Qatar's military. Um, so essentially, the problem with the Qatari decision-making process in the region politically is that it has no skin in the game. Uh, Qatar um, can go on foreign policy ex escapades, can engage in adventurism in the region, has the financial resources to do that, uh, but there is no risk of blowback at home 
because uh, of the small population, because of Al-Udaid Air Base being in Qatar, and because of the geography. Um, uh, there is very little risk of blowback. And the second order effects of its uh, meddling, of its um, uh, interference in the region would be shouldered by other countries, namely Iraq, Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia. So take, for example, uh, the ransom payment um, uh, in Iraq that was uh, uh, apprehended, by, that was um, uh, uh, stopped by the Iraqi government, Hyder Abadi's government. Um, the reports are, are a little bit murky on it. Uh, Financial Times reported that a total of $1 billion was to be dispensed to groups that are affiliated with Al-Qaeda and Hezbollah. Uh, and the Iraqi Central Bank said it, uh, it has apprehended um, $500 million, and that's being held right now and has been transferred back to Qatar. But if you look at, um, uh, and just to give context to it, so there were uh, uh, Qatari hunters from the royal family that were allegedly on a hunting trip in Iraq, and um, these hundreds of millions of dollars were supposed to be ransom payment for the release. And it's not $2, 3000000 million, it's half a billion dollars. Uh, the repercussions from that action uh, would have been felt in Saudi Arabia, where Al-Qaeda still conducts attacks, where in the past few years, around 20 uh, Al-Qaeda and, and, and ISIS attacks have been uh, conducted in Saudi Arabia. It would have been felt in Iraq, it would have been felt in Egypt, areas where that critical mass uh, does exist. If you look at Qatar's relationship with the Muslim Brotherhood, for example, with 300,000 citizens, uh, a transnational Islamist group doesn't have um, uh, fertile ground to set up shop and create a local opposition movement. So there's zero risk for the Qatari government when it comes to dealing with the Muslim Brotherhood. If you look at the UAE, for example, they did have a Muslim Brotherhood contingent. That is a political uh, reality uh, that could potentially pose a risk to them. Uh, it's something that they have to uh, consider in the equation. In Saudi Arabia, it's the same. In Egypt, it's the same. Uh, with Qatar, however, uh, you know, this adventurism carries a lot of potential upside, but no downside until uh, uh, the recent boycott that's been mounted by these four states. So the idea, I think, behind this boycott is to uh, communicate to the Qataris that there is risk uh, of blowback, um, that this reckless behavior isn't um, uh, something that's accept acceptable. That's on a regional level uh, in terms of regional cooperation. But when it comes to the bilateral level uh, between Qatar and Saudi Arabia, uh, in this case, uh, since 1995, relations have uh, been very sour between the two countries. Uh, the Saudis supported um, uh, the father of, of the former Emir, Sheikh Khalifa, uh, and so did the rest of the GCC countries. They viewed that um, uh, deposing him sets a dangerous precedent in the Gulf and isn't conducive to you know, uh, sustained stability in the region. And that's created um, uh, a very troubled relationship uh, from the outset. Uh, Al Jazeera, in turn, uh, started hosting uh, Saudi uh, dissidents, uh, some of whom uh, were on the UN um, uh, list for designated terrorists. Um, we started seeing the Qataris um, uh, investing in foreign agents within Saudi Arabia, so giving very high um, uh, salaries under the table to firebrand uh, religious clerics that, you know, are the, on the borderline between being um, uh, just very radical in their views and actively inciting and supporting terrorism. Uh, we've seen that, um, uh, for example, uh, the head of Al-Qaeda in Saudi Arabia, Abdelaziz Migran, at one point in time was given a Qatari passport and allowed to pass through the Qatari land border into Saudi Arabia. All of these, um, I, I don't know if I'd call them small, but um, violations, all of these issues uh, added up uh, after a while. Um, and I'm sure many of you have, have, have seen the big news item, which is the recordings of uh, uh, Sheikh Khalifa bin Hamad and his Prime Minister, Sheikh Hamad bin Jassim, with Qaddafi, 
they came out in, in 2013, I believe, uh, after uh, the, or, or was it 2012? I'm, I'm not entirely sure. After the Libyan intelligence uh, headquarters uh, was ransacked by the rebels, uh, all of these things came uh, to being. The recordings show that Sheikh Khalifa bin Hamad al Thani was speaking about um, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia uh, collapsing within 12 years. Uh, Sheikh Hamad bin Jassim was talking about essentially dividing Saudi Arabia up, saying that the extremist Wahhabis in the center of uh, uh, the country only have 400,000 barrels of oil, while the other areas um, east and west of Saudi Arabia uh, have the lion's share of oil in the country. Uh, what was funny also is that uh, Sheikh Khalifa bin Hamad al-Thani was telling Qaddafi that his 16th grandfather was Muhammad bin Abdul Rahab, who is the father of quote-unquote Wahhabism. Uh, while Hamad bin Jassim was calling the Wahhabi extremists uh, in, in, in the center of Najd uh, a problem. So there was a little bit of confusion there. So, but what was clear, and what is clear um, uh, to Saudi Arabia, is that Qataris pose a threat. So uh, they view every region, uh, every action by the Qataris in the region uh, with skepticism. And many would argue uh, rightfully so. And that's what I think is extremely important in this conflict and uh, um, important in thinking about how to bring about an end to it. Perception is key here. Uh, and that's what needs to be addressed. Um, Mohammed, thank you very much. W just one thing I want to make sure clear. I, I mean, I'm sure you told me during the, you know, the conversations we've had before, but I just want to make cl clear that you're saying that there's no risk or there's less risk for Qatar because the size of the population, so there's less of a chance of it blowing back on them? Oh, yes. The relations with the Muslim Brotherhood, say, or? More, yeah, yes. So uh, with only 300,000 citizens, you need for, uh, critical mass and economic disenfranchisement in order to set up uh, meaningful local opposition. Qatar doesn't have either. Uh, there is no economic disenfranchisement. There is no large population. But even beyond that, um, uh, you have uh, the Al-Odeid air base there, right. uh, and it's a small country. Oh, right, there's the things you were talking exactly. about, there's Al-Odeid. Exactly. So, so the idea of there being local Al-Qaeda cells, of uh, there being blowback from transferring money uh, to groups, whether it's ransom or otherwise, there is no risk of blowback. There's only been one suicide uh, attack in Qatar's history, actually. Interesting. Very interesting. Thanks very much. So we're going to move a little bit from, um, from a macro view of GCC relations to a more focused view uh, with, uh, with Fatma Bishan. And again, thank you very much for, uh, for being with us. And uh, if you'd like to uh, go ahead, that'd be great. Thanks. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Thanks for being here. Um, so I'm going to shift the dialogue a little bit and focus uh, more on what's happening within Saudi Arabia, specifically as it relates to sociocultural and economic uh, development and ultimately reform. And there are going to be three areas that I'm going to focus on <clears throat> to, to kind of highlight how sociocultural progress is potentially going to impact the, the politics. Um, one area that I'll discuss is women's rights. The next area that I'll try to get to is education reform. And the third area that I'll try to get to is uh, freedom of expression and its impact basically on um, sociocultural discourse within Saudi Arabia. So with respect to women's rights, um, Saudi Arabia in the last 10 years has made uh, tangible strides um, uh, in this area, and, and, and I speak to this very personally just as a Saudi national and somebody who's worked in Saudi Arabia um, and with previous work in the Islamic Development Bank and the, and the World Bank, um, but the country still has a ways to go. Uh, and the way that I measure this is a prequel to women's rights is I look at um, the notion of empowerment. And if I were to break down the notion of empowerment, I would look at um, specifically economic empowerment because that's an area that's very critical uh, 
from my perspective. And when I, when I talk about economic empowerment, I look at access, choice, and control. So access to the public sphere, uh, the labor market, and the political uh, system. Um, uh, choice with respect to um, industry um, and, and basically control over, your, over one's life choices and trajectory, uh, career trajectory or life trajectory. So uh, with respect to access and choice, Saudi Arabia has made significant strides um, uh, in the labor market um, with the matriculation of women into the labor force with the feminization of the retail industry a few years ago. That was kind of the, the, the tee-up uh, for women entering the labor market at scale. Um, and also with, with respect to political systems, so with the Shura Council appointments of, uh, of women and then with the municipal elections. Um, in terms of more recently, uh, driving is a, is a big issue that comes up um, and, and is a barrier to, to, to entry into the market, obviously. And so just recently, actually just last week, there was a, an initiative that was launched to subsidize transportation for women working in the private sector who were making a cap of uh, 5,000 riyad, which will be significant in getting a specific socioeconomic tier into, into the labor market. In terms of industry choice, it's also been significant. So industry choice uh, uh, with respect to home-based, the pro proliferation of home-based businesses. So that allows women to kind of, um, uh, if they want to uh, stay close to cultural norms and be a house mom, can still open a home-based business. And that's, that's been significant. Um, with respect to control, the guardianship system is still a challenge. And I, I've been very open about this. The guardianship, the guardianship system is, um, you know, patronizing, paternalistic, I've, I've called it uh, misogynistic uh, to a great extent. But what's been fascinating with the guardianship system is that uh, very recently, Saudi Arabia was elected to the UN Women's uh, Commission. And, a lot, and some people scoffed at this, and I understand that. Um, but for me, I thought it was a really, um, a very interesting indication as to where the country is going to go with respect to women's rights. Because it, for an insular country that's as, as conservative as Saudi Arabia, to hold itself accountable and to be, um, basically allow itself to be publicly scrutinized, not even on the, on the public stage, but at the global stage, and hold itself accountable to global standards is significant. And I think an indication that kind of substantiates that, um, that thought was very shortly thereafter, just in May, the king issued a royal decree to, to review the guardianship, guardianship system because the issue really is the organic, ad hoc, discretionary uh, application of it. So someone like me who can go, I've had several different experiences of opening a bank account, changing jobs, et cetera, and never had to have permission for anything. Someone sitting next to me would have a very different, a woman sitting next to me would have a very different experience. And so the review will kind of create a check, uh, checking system to that. So that's, that's significant. Um, I'm going to pivot very quickly to education reform because that one is, uh, that's a topic uh, that I realize is very, uh, it's topical here. And just last week I was on the Hill listening to a, a hearing on um, Saudi Arabia and its curriculum development. And so this, is, to a great extent, is my personal testimony, if you will. Um, so I just relocated to D.C. a couple of months ago. I was formerly with the Minister, Ministry of Labor as a consultant and then with the Ministry of Economy and Planning as a government employee. <clears throat> so I can speak to this without giving away any kind of confidential information. When, it, when we talk about education reform for Saudi Arabia, um, what the discourse that I noticed here is very myopically focused on curriculum development, and I understand that. But I think we need to step back and look at two things. One, um, if we 
learn to gauge Saudi Arabia's development and uh, localize the measuring stick. Uh, if we learn to gauge Saudi Arabia's development and localize the measuring stick, that meaning that we look at Saudi Arabia's own trajectory and accept its religio-historical narrative, not necessarily assess it based on Western democratic secular ideals, then I think we can collectively measure progress while at the same time highlight challenges and, and, and revisit where things have been rectified. What do I mean by that? Saudi Arabia will always, uh, for the most part, continue to have uh, religious curriculum built within its education system. That, just like we can't decouple secularism from the American narrative, it's very difficult to decouple Islam from the, from the Saudi narrative. That's not to say that, um, that there were not needs to uh, rectify intolerant um, uh, messages that were going out in curriculum. And just last week, the State Department issued a report where it acknowledged under uh, the National Transformation Program in 2030, where Saudi Ministry of Education has made strides in rectifying uh, the curriculum that was deemed intolerant. The truth of the matter is, is that Saudi Arabia, to achieve its 2030 vision goals, and as well as its 2020, which is coming up in two years, um, NTP goals, is going to have to revise its education system from a, a from a pedagogic perspective, as well as from an education system perspective, including curriculum. But curriculum then, what, what we're calling kind of secular curriculum here, it relates to STEMs, injecting more STEMs, so science, technology, engineering, mathematics, uh, et cetera. But I think, and this is the last thing I'm going to say before I let um, Matthew speak. I, I just want to make sure I don't go over time. Um, I think when we look at education reform, what is it, in the American audience, we're looking at it strictly from a curriculum perspective. From the, from the Saudi strategy, it's much more expansive. Education, um, if you look at all the touch points of what, what a student um, experiences when it comes to education, when a student gets out of the car, walks into a building, that's infrastructure. When they go into the building and they're greeted by the principal, that's administration. When they go into the classroom and they see the teacher, that's teacher development. When they get the lesson, that's curriculum. When they leave the school and they go home, then you have to engage the parents to ensure that whatever's absorbed within the classroom is also continually matriculated in the home sphere. Um, uh, and once the student is finished experiencing that, then you have to make sure that you've developed a career education and development industry where you have career counselors, guidance counselors, et cetera, to help you figure out what you want to do with yourself and go into the workforce. So when people here are focused on curriculum, people there are focused on a much more expansive kind of review. Um, and so I just wanted to, to bring this kind of out as my own testimony, if you will, that hopefully will make it to Chairman Poe, um, uh, because it's, it's, it, it is a massive and tectonic shift. And let's not forget that education is often used as, it, education is often the tool that is, how do I say this? It constructs the citizen identity in a lot of ways. And so you can construct the citizen identity to be economic contributors, right, GDP contributors. But you also have to do that in a way that doesn't um, compromise your own cultural integrity. And I think it's important to keep that in mind when we talk about education reform in Saudi Arabia. And this is fascinating. Thank you, Fatima. I was going to say it's not just right, it's not just constructing the identity of the individual, but also a national identity and what are the things that a society prizes. And so one of the things I want to come back and ask you about later is, look, I mean, are, the, are people in Saudi society, are they happy and energized about these reforms? Or are people anxious, like, no, this is not what we want to do. So, but I, I want to come back around on that. So, but thank you very much.
Um, Mike, if you would uh, if, if you would uh, finish off our first round, thanks. Well, thanks for having me, and glad to be part of this panel. So, my background: I actually deployed into Kuwait from Saudi Arabia during the Gulf War. So, I look at uh, at these things from the perspective of how countries have helped the United States military take on determined enemies. So, going into Kuwait from Saudi Arabia. Uh, when we were based there in 1990, of course, gave a lot of ammunition to Osama bin Laden to target U.S. forces based on the fact that we occupied sacred, holy uh, terrain. Um, I've also deployed into Iraq four times, deployed and redeployed from, to Iraq from al Yudid Air Base and Qatar four times. And I worked at CINCOM Forward uh, beginning, the beginning stages of going into Iraq. I think I actually went out of Qatar into Afghanistan as well when I was a commander in 2002. So the way I look at this is I look at the real world, right? Uh, necessary allies and determined enemies. So in the Middle East, we have determined enemies. We have Al-Qaeda, we have ISIS. We have IRGC, their Quds Force, the Revolutionary Guard, their Quds Force, and also their Shia militia proxies. So as an intelligence officer, we look towards our Sunni Arab allies in the region to help us uh, defeat al-Qaeda and ISIS. We can't do that without the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. We can't do that uh, without intelligence from Jordan, from Egypt, from Iraq, also from, from Qatar. And remember in the beginning of the U.S. Uh, invasion of Afghanistan, we actually received intelligence from Iran on al-Qaeda operatives. And oh, how all that has changed uh, just based on this. So we look at uh, necessary allies and determined enemies. I wrote a piece, a controversial piece, a year ago, titled Saudi Arabia is a Great American Ally, and got attacked for that. But I laid out in that, I contrasted a necessary ally in the fight against ISIS and al-Qaeda versus a determined enemy that the Obama administration was courting, and that being the regime in Iran and the IRGC. So I think as we look to Qatar's actions, and the GCC uh, boycott uh, of Qatar based on these key demands. You can see the calculus maybe that Qatar actually made in that they were taking a position aligned with the Obama administration, a pro-Muslim Brotherhood position, a pro-Iran position. And also, if you look at Western Europe, they were doing the same thing. And I think it caught everybody by surprise. I think the, the Qatari government believed that they could uh, continue this uh, they've been in the very fortunate position of being able to say no, maybe, possibly, when it relates to supporting terrorism, and always being able to say, but look what else we're doing. Look what we're doing to help you. So as you look at uh, this election, uh, nobody saw Trump coming. I believe the Qataris thought that the Clinton administration would continue this, this line of engagement with Iran and this, uh, this uh, look towards the Muslim Brotherhood as something you could deal with because it has a political wing. Now, all that sounds nice, but when you get to the, the specifics of what Qatar is, is doing and has done in the past, you do see a place where it's almost like getting to the border of Mexico. As long as you can get there, you can get away from law enforcement and you can plan your next, your next gig. It can't be that. You can't both host the World Cup and host U.S. bases and then allow uh, terrorist financers to lobby donors in the open. 
One of my biggest problems with with uh, one of the things that, that Qatar did do was the Bo Bergdahl exchange, the five Taliban commanders that were sent to Qatar that were supposed to have ankle bracelets. Their assets were supposed to be frozen. They weren't supposed to be able to communicate with the Taliban. We don't even know where they are now. We have no idea where these five Taliban commanders are. So looking at the real world, and, and we can extend this out because I want to I I make a parallel here. So we look at determined enemies. I mentioned the IRGC, I mentioned al-Qaeda and ISIS, but we also have North Korea. So one of the arguments, and you, you addressed this, you addressed the, the human rights changes and the, and, and the moderation that's going on in the kingdom. And a lot of times you'll hear, well, how can you work with Saudi Arabia because they do this? Aren't they just like Iran? How can you be against Iran and then be pro-Saudi Arabia? And it's, it's just a matter of who is helping us defeat al-Qaeda and ISIS? Who is a target of al-Qaeda and ISIS when it comes to that specific thing? But let's move this to North Korea. We're asking the Chinese and the Russians to help us with North Korea because they pose a threat. We're not asking that they um, moderate or, or they, they change their human rights you know, positions. Tillerson said that, and he got a lot, in a lot of trouble for saying, at least with the media, that the United States is not going to tell countries how, what to do with their human rights because we have more pressing problems. And that's basically the argument. How can you, we ask Russia to help us with North Korea when they kill journalists that oppose Putin's agenda? How can we ask China to help us with North Korea when they have their human rights abuses? How can you work with Saudi Arabia when they have it? But this, the kingdom has, and the, all you have to do is look at it, the kingdom has made massive reforms. They're continuing down that line. And what I like about this GCC strategy to, to level these charges against Qatar as it shines a light right back in their face that they have to adhere to. They have to take care of adventurists that are supporting al-Qaeda and Jabhat al-Nusra, the new Jabhat al-Nusra, and other groups. Uh, one of the things when I contrast Iran with Saudi Arabia, I say Iran has a Quds force. Iran can throw money at militias and make them operate along the same lines to promote Iranian strategic goals. The good thing about when Qatari adventurists or even Saudi adventurists, and it's good to hear that the kingdom is cracking down on them, is that they basically say, who wants to keep Assad in position? And a bunch of people raise their hand. Or who wants to fight, uh, who wants to fight uh, Assad? And a bunch of people raise their hand. And they throw money at them. And these groups, this money tends to get into the hands of al-Qaeda affiliates and al-Qaeda itself and ISIS itself. So if the kingdom actually had a Quds force, it would be more dangerous. Right now it has adventurous that are able to do things, and the government's cracking down on that. Uh, Qatar is doing the same thing. So like I said, Qatar's in the advantageous position of being able to say, yes, maybe, maybe, probably, but, but look what we're doing. We host a U.S. base that's been instrumental in the fight against ISIS. We host 10,000 U.S. soldiers. We host CENCOM forward. We have actually charged, indicted, and frozen the assets of UN-designated uh, terrorists in, Iran, in Qatar. We've done these things. Here's the loophole, and here's what Obama's State Department said about Qatar's uh, cracking down on terror, terrorism, finance, terrorism finance. They'll do that if the designated terrorist has been designated by both the UN and the United States. They will not do that if it's simply the United States, and that's the problem because there are U.S.-designated terrorists operating, not operating, not conducting operations, but they're not worried about being detained, and they're in Qatar, and they continue to, to push money 
and, and, re and request money through donors to fund different groups, and, and that's an issue. Um, what, what I also like about this position, but we're getting dangerously close to letting Russia play too big a role here with Qatar, is that you ha can have the GCC come in hard on Qatar, and then you can have the State Department come in with soft power. Then you can have Mattis use hard power with carrots and sticks. So we have levers when it comes to Qatar. You cannot both host the World Cup and be the bar out of Star Wars where people negotiate and and get money for terrorist activities. You can't you can't do both. Um, yes, Qatar can say, look what look at all we've done, but we need to shine a light on that now. We also have short-term objectives, the defeat of ISIS, the defeat of al-Qaeda, which has been a long-term objective, curbing Iranian influence in the region. And a lot of the strategy and the U.S. strategy in the Middle East is to curb Iranian influence in the region and also to defeat ISIS and al-Qaeda. This effort should push Qatar away from the Iranian sphere of influence. Qatar is moving towards it, and that's one of the concerns. This, this hunting party that you talked about, so a lot of... I don't know if you know, but there were 20, 20 individuals that were captured in, in Iraq, and U.S. Treasury and U.S. Intel say that a ransom was paid uh, to Iran, to the Revolutionary Guard Corps, and they gave that money to Kitab Hezbollah, a designated terrorist group that operates in Iraq, that is somehow part of Iraq's... Um, security forces now, legitimate security forces, as part of its role in the Hashid al-Shabi, or the People's Mobilization Units, or the Popular Mobilization Units. So you have a way of, of, of pushing money towards whether it's nefarious or whether it's simply getting a hunting party kidnapped. But $500 million went to a group that Iran pays $50 million a year to operate in Iraq. And that's concerning. And then you have the, the Qatari argument that, well, how can you say that we're funding Iranian militias, and also funding al-Qaeda. Wouldn't that go against Iran's interests? Wouldn't that go against um, um, Turkey's interests and Russia's interests and Assad's interests in Syria? So it's a, it's a great position to be in if you're a cutter because now you're getting uh, Erdogan's trying to move in to be a third-party guarantor. Uh, Ku Kuwait is now being, playing the honest broker role. And now you have Erdogan moving in. So one of the demands I saw was that Qatar not allow Turkey to build a base there. And then Qatar can, on the other hand, can say, well, we're building a base to train U.S. rebels to fight Assad and ISIS. So they're, they're on all sides. And I think what you talked about, this dynamic, that the population is never really affected because it's not that big. So Qatar is able to do these things without the ramifications. So it's an interesting example of what the wild, wild west looks like uh, when it does good things and does bad things. And uh, we need Al-Yudid Air Base. We need CENTCOM forward there. We need the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. We need our Gulf allies to help us focus on these immediate threats. But now with Russia moving in and, and Erdogan moving in to actually side with Qatar and, Qatar, and Qatar's tilt towards the Iranian sphere of influence, we, we, we may, have, may see this window close to a point where you're at a stalemate, and and that's what I think will impact our our fight against ISIS, fight against Al Qaeda, and also our ability to push back against uh, the Iranian uh, export of terrorism through its proxies and the IRGC.
Mike, thank you, Mike. And, and that's, I mean, that is one of the things that I very much wanted this panel to be able to address, the fact that a, uh, a GCC at odds or a GCC, uh, GCC members at each other's throats, it's not good for the uh, United States or our allies around the region, including, including the GCC states. We're all American allies. But one of the things I, one of the things I wanted to, to ask a little bit about, well, Fatima, I, I'm, I'm going to ask in a second, like, to what extent this, um, these problems in the GCC will affect internal reform. But before I get to that, uh, I want to you know, uh, push back a little bit. Mike and Mohammed, like, look, is it really fair to say Qatar is pro-Iran or pro-Muslim Brotherhood? Isn't this, isn't this typical of how the Qatari has been playing? And Mike, I know you were in, you were in Iraq in 2002. I mean, this is a, what, what Al Jazeera has been doing for a long time, right? I mean, it's kind of pro-Saddam Hussein. While they're also hosting Al-Udaid, they, they had a, they had a, I believe the Israelis had an interest section in Doha, a financial, financial interest section in Doha. While they were also, while they had Samir Kuntar, they were celebrating his birthday on Al Jazeera. So what's changed now? Why is this raised to the level of such a concern when lots of people have known all along, and it seems like the Defense Department is actually making this case, unfortunately, it's who the countries are. We have to deal with it like this. So why is it raised to the level of such a concern now? What's different? What's different at this point? Mohammed, if I can ask you to start on that, then Mike, I want to, you know. I think Qatar will go down in history as the friend and the enemy of everybody at the same time. Okay. No, they're, they're dealing with Hezbollah, but they're also dealing with Al-Qaeda. They're dealing with the Houthis, who are very far away in Yemen. They're dealing with various groups in Libya. They're dealing with various groups in Syria. They're doing all sorts of things in Iraq. They're even um, uh, uh, meddling inside Saudi Arabia. I don't think there's a grand strategy here. People try think, to ascribe a right? grand what strategy you, to what's going on. I think a lot of it is adventurism. A lot of it is, is um, uh, an attempt at political relevance. I mean, I'm sure... It makes certain officials in Qatar very happy when, you know, when the Syrian issue is brought up and people say the United States, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and Qatar, country with 300,000 citizens. Yeah. There, there's, there's a lot of um, uh, prestige. But I don't think that there is, um, uh, uh, you know, <coughs> a method behind the madness of, of supporting groups that are at odds with each other. If there were a method behind that sort of madness, uh, they wouldn't be stuck in a hostage situation with groups that they've maintained uh, at least, uh, you know, a working relationship with um, uh, for a while. Why are we so upset now? Why is Saudi Arabia so upset now? And the Trump administration seems to be take different positions, including the president himself from time to time will take different positions. So why generally has, again, why is this raised to the level of a, of a not a strategic threat it may be, though, at some point, but why so serious right now? Mike, do you want to? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, when, when President Trump went to Saudi Arabia and made it his first stop uh, in the Middle East, or actually his first trip overseas, that sent a signal to Iran. Uh, if you listen to the Saudi foreign minister, he took advantage of that, that window where all the media was watching to see if Trump would mess up or Tillerson would say something that contradicted Trump. And the foreign minister took advantage, and he had a 20-minute window, a Comey-like teardown of the IRGC uh, with an indictment as opposed to a non-indictment. The, the thing about that was 
it sent a signal to Iran that this is a new administration, that the Obama administration is tilted towards Iran in order to secure the JCPOA, the Iran deal. This would be different. And we can talk about that later. But Qatar also sends a signal to Iran. I mean, Iran has also provided lethal aid to al-Qaeda, uh, to, to groups are not supposed to. I, I don't know if we've ever had an intelligence report where Saudi Arabia was providing funds to Hezbollah. I don't know. I hope not. I mean, but Iran can do both. Iran can provide lethal aid to al-Qaeda, can provide lethal aid to Shia militias. Qatar's doing that as well. Now, now, why does Qatar do it? So Oman is the place where you can go to talk to anybody. Oman has is, is built itself as a bridge where the U.S. can hold secret talks with Iranians on the Iran deal, and, and Oman has set themselves up to be a bridge into places where the U.S. really can't get into sometimes. Uh, Qatar should not be the super highway for the lethal aid as, aspect of that and the financial aid aspect of that. And again, uh, they do everything because I think the arguments are, well, why would we do that if we're doing this? Why would we do this if we're, if we're doing that? Um, just repeating myself, but that's what they're doing too, depending on the group you're talking to. Um, they're, they're in a position where they're being courted, and they're, this is being incentivized. And they can always say, why would we do that when we're hosting a base? Why would we do that when we're hosting the World Cup? Come on. These are just simply Saudi allegations. Again, look what we've done with US designate, UN designated terrorists. Again, it's the US designated terrorists that, I, that I'm concerned about. Um, so back to the, the Al Jazeera. So Al Jazeera in 2003, uh, in 2005 when I, when I was there, as soon as we got there, we said, if you see an Al Jazeera cameraman, get ready for an attack. Sorry, by the way, I think I misspoke. I said 2002. When yeah, yeah. So, so I got there in 2005. Right. I was in Afghanistan in 2002. But when I, we got there, there was already a battle drill. We were already taught this battle drill. If you see a, an Al Jazeera cameraman filming your convoy, you're going to get hit. Because they were actually live streaming Al Qaeda hits on U.S. convoys and U.S. patrols. So we literally, if we saw somebody with a camera, our rules of engagement said you can shoot a warning shot at the cameraman. So watch out, guys. Do you guys guys? <laughs> I guess another way to ask the question is, and not maybe it's not why now, but no, why didn't this raise to the level of that concern then if Al Jazeera was believed to actually be uh, coordinating with people who were firing? Well, oh, Iraq, the Iraqi government moved them out and right. didn't allow them to do that anymore. The Qatari government cracked down on okay, it. Was a but I mean, why wasn't it raised the level of concern inside the U.S. government? We're seeing, I mean, I know there were other issues as well, including the war in Iraq, including the war in Afghanistan. Well, there's part of it that if you get rid of the cameraman, you don't know the attack's coming. It's an indicator. As an intel guy, I'm like, I want an indicator that something's about to happen. So now, again, Al Jazeera, I, I, there was, and I, forgive me, but there wasn't a better outlet for me to criticize the Iran deal and the Obama administration than Al Jazeera uh, when, during this, the last two years. The ISIS strategy, the Iran deal, you would get an audience. Al Jazeera English, Al Jazeera Arabic. I, I have many appearances there. It's not because, you know, I support al-Qaeda or ISIS or terrorism, but it was a, it was a platform, just like Al-Arabiya was a platform to criticize the Obama administration's uh, fight against ISIS, the JCPOA, and also Iran. So the issue is Al Jazeera giving special, you know, Rachel Maddow-type shows 
to people who are advocating for suicide bombers, uh, people who are advocating to attack American soldiers in Iraq, uh, people that have been designated, you know, with Gama Islamia, you know, a terrorist group affiliated with Al Qaeda. Uh, this is the problem, and you, you know, you can call it freedom of speech, but you know, we don't we don't allow that here, and we're one of the freest nations in the world. We are the freest nation in the world. We don't allow a a, a sectarian, religious, terrorist-affiliated leader to have his own talk show on a major news network, actually on the state-run news network. So, you know, there are things like that. So Al-Qaeda, or I'm sorry, Al, Al Jazeera has a history, but again, Al Jazeera can say the same thing. Yes, but look what else we've done. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot to it. I love nuance, and I like imperfections. But there are things we can do here. There's a, there are things the Qatari government can do here. Uh, we need to revise Qatar's um, look at financial support to terrorism and say, if it's a U.S.-designated terrorist that's in Qatar roaming around, you need to treat him the same as a U.N.-designated terrorist, or you lose these things. We have levers with Qatar, and we should we should use them. And I, I believe Madison Tillerson are, are playing both sides, the carrot and sticks part, and I think that we'll – We'll get there, but the window's closing because Erdogan and Putin are starting to step in. Um, Fatima, so again, and we can bring it back to a sort of a different, <clears throat> different focus. How much is the, how, how stable does the GCC or the region need to be for the different reforms? I mean, you mentioned a little something before, and I think many people in the audience know about uh, Vision 2030 which uh, is the government's, Mohammed bin Salman's idea for the next uh, 13 years of uh, <clears throat> what it should look like in Saudi Arabia. So how much stability is necessary around the region and therefore in the country to see different economic and social reforms implemented? Or is this a problem for people inside, inside the country right now? Well, Saudi Arabia obviously operates within kind of a regional dynamic and doesn't have the luxury of, of operating in a vacuum, and, and that's recognized. Um, so re regardless of kind of external factors, there is a focus to uh, reform uh, the domestic landscape with respect to socio-cultural and, and economic um, reform. I want to go back and touch on a, a point that Michael had just made and, and something that you had mentioned Please, earlier yeah. as well. Um, and it was actually the third point that I wanted to unpack but, but didn't uh, regarding the expansion of freedom of expression and socio-cultural discourse mm -hmm. in Saudi Arabia that I foresee has the long-term uh, potential to impact the politic. So for a long time, uh, Saudi Arabia has gotten a, a scrutinized, understandably, for um, kind of an autocratic government, uh, lack of freedom of speech, um, nobody can really express their opinions. In the last five years alone, uh, if, you, if you, again, if we collectively localize the measuring stick on how we would measure, let's say, the First Amendment, for example, and how that would manifest in Saudi Arabia, um, so uh, freedom of speech, freedom to assemble, uh, freedom to petition, uh, freedom of press, et cetera, freedom of religion. 
I think we would see very tangible manifestations of all of these elements in Saudi Arabia. So uh, two areas that, that you can see this very clearly is within political satire and within Twitter. So you had asked a moment ago, I wonder what people think about what's happening with respect to reform. You don't have to ask me, just hop on Twitter and, and use Google Translate. It's been fascinating. I'll give you a very recent example, the, what I'm calling the Saudi miniskirt scandal. That incident oh, yes, alone. That's right. I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to. Can you just describe that for some people here sure. who might not know? No problem. I'll, I'll go through it now. No problem. Thanks. So basically, there was a young Yemeni uh, lady. I'm not going to say her name just out of respect for her privacy. Was her name made public? <laughs> yeah, it was. Oh. Um, so uh, there was a young uh, Yemeni lady who uh, walked uh, with a mini skirt and crop top, a beautiful young girl, through a heritage site just outside of the Real Shager. Um, and the video went viral. And so everyone was focused on, understandably, why this was even an issue. But the angle that I looked at was, look at I, when you looked at the public discourse around the uh, spectrum of opinions that manifested with respect to this incident publicly on Twitter, was fascinating. So there were men and women, conservative and liberal, calling each other out to count that if it were a foreign lady, there were women saying if it were a foreign lady, that it wouldn't uh, have been an issue. Some people even went as far as to um, take the first daughter, uh, Ivanka Trump's face, and, and superimpose it on the and 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 say, you know, if if, uh, if if this were her, then people would be talking about how beautiful she is. But regardless of the incident itself, I, I just took a step back and, and looked at how the, the spectrum of opinions that that it elicited publicly, um, and that's been fascinating. And there have been time and time again within Saudi Arabia where where I've seen, even with um, just a few years ago when Saudi Arabia changed its weekend, there was pushback from the conservative base that this would mimic a Western construct. And so what the government has done, basically, is taken a step back and allowed the, the public to kind of build consensus among itself and normalize a policy before it executes it. And so it allowed the discourse around the, around the weekend change to play out. It took a few years, people in op-eds, people in coffee shops, people on Twitter, and then immediately the execution was very quick. And so I, it's, it's, for me, looking at the public discourse that manifests on online and also in political satire, so with selfie and other soap operas that take on very what you would perceive to be hard line um, kind of taboo issues, what democracy would look like in Saudi Arabia. There was a selfie uh, episode during Ramadan, the second night of Ramadan, which is prime time. Um, that talked about what democracy would look like in Saudi Arabia. And, and the, the, the two actors were going back and forth, one of them saying, you know, democracy would never work in Saudi Arabia. Uh, it would either be, go to the Bedouins or the Islamists. And this was very polemical and drew a lot of backlash, but the, the show carried on. And so the, the, this kind of public and political discourse is starting to manifest. And I think even though we, you know, Saudi Arabia doesn't necessarily have a First Amendment, doesn't have a freedom of speech, you still see these elements of freedom of expression that ultimately uh, have the potential to impact policy change. And I think that's significant for this audience to understand. And with respect to the last point that I'm going to make, sorry, but with respect to specifically the Saudi-U.S. relationship, so there's been a revival between the Saudi and U.S. relationship with this administration and, and basically building on the, the previous kind of alliances with respect to security and economics. But I think to move the relationship forward, we, we respectively have to be tolerant on both sides in order to assess each other with respect to indigenous kind of lenses in order to measure progress, because it might not necessarily be an exact assessment, but it's still, um, it's still progress.
If the United States is, is, is moving in different ways to help resolve the GCC crisis and has reestablished, as both Mike and Mohammed has said, very uh, warm relationships after a, after a chillier time during the Obama administration. So what are the different ways right now that the United States is helping in terms of or can help in terms of economic social reforms? I suspect there's probably a lot of people who said, look, we don't want a lot of attention on, uh, on our school textbooks. And people have nonetheless pointed out, oh, no, there are some problems in those textbooks. And you were also talking about the, you know, the young woman who was wearing a miniskirt and a crop top. And you said that some of these things played out there but with the weekend, with the change in the weekend. So, I mean, presumably the Twitter episode is not going to lead to a change in dress code, right? Well, you I mean, would be surprised. I mean, no time soon. You would be surprised, Lee, what, again, what, what you would see on Twitter and social media and political satire potentially has the propensity to create a critical mass to affect policy change. And, and we've, I've seen it specifically around, for example, the weekend change uh, with respect to... Uh, one, I'm sorry, when was that again? It was 2013, if I'm not mistaken. It was very, it was relatively recently. Um, um, so, but, but the point being that you, it, it's, it's incremental and it's new. So give it time, and I, I, I foresee it being kind of an indication as to a potential policy change. Um, there was a point that you just made a moment ago that I wanted to touch on. Oh, just really quickly, the education and the alliances between the United States and, and, right. and, and Saudi Arabia. So uh, the Public Education Evaluation Commission, actually, this was a UN uh, commissioned project with the Ministry of Labor and, and Social Development, actually instituted a, a, a U.S. university to come in and support uh, Saudi uh, with that. The project started a few years ago and ended in, at the end of 2016, so we'll see now the bearings of, the, of, of that fruit. But there are, there are alliances aside from the, the massive opportunities with, re, with respect to private-public uh, partnerships and, and foreign direct investments across different industries from military manufacturing to pharmaceuticals to education, uh, just across the board. Um, Mohammed, I, I, wanna, I know you want to say something, but I need to call on you sure. for a second. Um, it's a quick thing on the social okay, media. Okay, 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 please, and then, and yeah. then I'll... No, I read recently in a, in a study on Arab social media that the only country in the Middle East that has never cut, uh, never blocked Twitter or Facebook is Saudi Arabia. I was actually very surprised at that figure. Even uh, Lebanon has cut um, uh, social media. And it's very important, I think, to um, uh, ask why. I think social media is a very important tool for the government to gauge public opinion, to put out its own message, to control the narrative about itself, uh, and to um, hear back from people uh, as to what they're thinking about what it's doing. Do they look so, carefully at the social media? Stuff they do, I think. They do, I think. And I think a very useful study going forward to be see, would be to uh, investigate to what extent the government reacts <laughs> to controversy on social media and the, the extent to which social media activism uh, is effective as an instrument uh, for uh, for change and, and for policy. Uh, planning inside your day. Uh, Lee, I'm sorry. I just have to interject one last thing. Uh, sorry, Mohammed. Um, so uh, uh, the Nakhil Mall incident, I don't know if you remember this or not. It happened last year. There was a young lady who was dressed uh, conservatively wearing abaya. She steps outside of Nakhil Mall and the religious police came and uh, basically dragged her to the ground. And the, somebody video, uh, videoed the the uh, incident and the video went viral. Shortly thereafter, the religious police were stripped of their uh, powers. Oh, I didn't yes. know that that was part of what. That's interesting. Yes, and so it, there's there fe feedback eventually uh, creates a critical mass. 
Um, so here's what I want to ask you, Muhammad. We talked about this last week when the different stories came out uh, on the Times, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Reuters. And the argument was, so you guys are talking about how things are good in Saudi Arabia. The uh, uh, now Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is forward-looking and things are moving on. There's social and economic reform. But the story that, the, that this piece seemed to put out was not everything is going great. There are different, uh, there is a problem with the succession. It seems that uh, Mohammed bin Salman was the deputy crown prince and pushed aside his cousin, Mohammed bin Naif. And so there was a lot of, uh, a lot of attention paid to these stories and this issue. And again, I think the point was to suggest maybe there are problems in Saudi Arabia right now with the royal family. The issue is not just with Qatar. Um, they have problems of their own inside. So can you address, I mean, not necessarily address the idea and, and if you want to, you know, talk about the stories too. So. I just found them all very confusing. Okay. Saudi Arabia is a monarchy. I don't know why we should be having this discussion in the first place. I mean, there's a king and he's the commander-in-chief in the country and he decided to change the deputy. And in order to change the deputy, you have to do two things. First, you release the royal decree. And then you have to go through a second level of, of, of check, if you like, which is the Regents Council. All of that happened. Now, the government says that Prince Mohammed bin Naif submitted his um, uh, acceptance, so to speak, of, of um, uh, the transition and writing to the king. But even if he didn't submit his acceptance, it's inconsequential if you want to look at it from a legal uh, standpoint. And I mean, there was so many it's the factual and Yeah, I mean, the fact that the three articles came out uh, at the same time, uh, on the same day, uh, very clearly, you know, use the same sources, seems to suggest that the sources had certain biases, had certain um, uh, issues. They were uh, disgruntled to some extent. They had, they had an agenda to push. And I think there was a real lapse uh, in coverage when it came to these sources in assessing the biases that these, um, uh, that these people And it was had. strange, but the idea that three stories for virtually the same came out on the same yeah. exact day. Definitely. And there were, I mean, I was going to go into a list of factual inaccuracies in the story. General Al-Huairini, who the New York Times um, described was under house arrest, um, uh, turned, uh, the next day he was appointed as the head of the Saudi security right. uh, um, uh, apparatus uh, in the country, and they had to publish a weird retraction-type story that wasn't really a retraction. Uh, and then they suggested that he might have been, uh, they said he, we don't know yet whether he's a figurehead or not, you know, insinuating right. that maybe he would have been appointed to appease the New York Times, which I think is just crazy. But Mike, how much of this is going, I mean, how much of this is, uh, and I, I don't mean to spring a too weird a question on you, but how much of this is coming about, look, is what we have seen here over the last several years, and, and uh, I, I've spoken about it like this before, I think in many ways in Washington, the idea was put like, well, who's better or who's worse, Saudi Arabia or Iran? And I think a lot of people during the Obama years, the idea is like, well, Iran is better. Iran is better than Saudi Arabia. And now people now, and certainly the president, I think that he's, uh, I mean, certainly he's, again, warmed relationships, warmed the relationship with Saudi Arabia. But the way that I look at it is it's not about choosing Saudi Arabia or Iran. It's about what the American alliance system looks like. And the GCC is part of this, and Saudi Arabia is part of this. We have many allies around the region, so it's not about choosing between, you know, between two different Middle Eastern powers. But what kind of residual effect do you think that uh, Obama policy choices have had on what we're seeing now? 
when we're looking when we're looking at the region and 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 particularly the Gulf, but not just the Gulf. So, what kind of effect do you think we're seeing? Still, if I think it all started in 2008 when General Petraeus flew then candidate or then um, president elect Obama around the battlefield in Iraq and talked about the effects of the surge and how the surge was working. And in that flight, uh, then president elect Obama said, okay, that's great, but we're out of here. We're leaving Iraq. And that sent a signal to the RGC and the Quds Force to step up its pressure on the Maliki government to resist the status of forces agreement that would have allowed us to stay in there and monitor the, the security situation in Iraq and prevent a security backslide like the one that happened uh, June 10th, 2014. There was this tilt. I almost believe there was a roundtable that said, what can we do that's different from George Bush? Let's do the opposite. And the opposite was courting Iran, with the question being, who else hates Sunni terrorism? Well, Iran does. And that should never be a, 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 a simple answer that actually results in a change in U.S. strategy. Um, engagement with, with Iran began early on in, in the Obama administration to get to the JCPOA. That was a, a, key, a key thing that the Obama administration looked at. And if we look at the Iran deal, the JCPOA, we now know that the Obama administration believed that Iran would walk away if we increased sanctions on Iran. We now know they were bluffing because the Trump administration, uh, with each certification, has actually increased sanctions on Iran during this review period of the JCPOA. So in the next 20 days, this Department of State, the President, National Security Council will actually look at U.S. strategy towards Iran and with looking at the Iran deal and how it's actually emboldened Iran in the region and how it's allowed it to do more, shore up, buttress Assad, Qasem uh, Soleimani's trip to Moscow to, to invite Russia into the Syria conflict. And, and you just look at what has happened. So I think this, this is the, the opposite of that conversation that may have taken place in 2008. You know, what do we do different than Bush? And now you have Trump reestablishing traditional alliances, traditional American alliances, again, Necessary allies versus determined enemies. We have to have relations uh, with these groups in order to decimate al-Qaeda, decimate ISIS, and curb Iranian influence in the region. And going back to this thing with Qatar, uh, Qatar can say, look, we don't have militias. We don't have terrorist groups operating in, in Qatar. Look at Iraq. You have designated militias, terrorist militias operating in Iraq. Look at Lebanon. You have a designated terrorist group operating in Lebanon. You have designated terrorists operating in Lebanon and Syria and Yemen and other places. Um, so Qatar's in that position to say, again, yes, but look at these other countries. So again, I think, I think it's a great strategy to put a light on Qatar. I think it's, it's a great strategy to put a light on a country that's going to host the World Cup that's currently allowing people that finance terrorism to roam their streets uh, without being detained and without being stopped. Um, <clears throat> again, this sends a signal to Baghdad. Hey, Baghdad, what if we did this to you? You're doing the same thing that we're, we're actually doing it on steroids that we're claiming, uh, that we're, we're saying Qatar is doing. Assad, you're doing the same thing. You know, there are, there are Iran, you're doing the same thing. Uh, even point at Russia saying, you know, you're, you're providing funds and lethal aid to the Taliban, thinking that they're solely going to focus on ISIS when we know that they're continuing to attack Americans and, you know, conduct suicide bombings in, in Bagram, not Bagram, but Kabul. So the real world, 
the real world. There are things, low-hanging fruit. This isn't low-hanging fruit, stopping the lethal aid of, of weapons and stopping the uh, lethal financing of these terrorist organizations. These are the, the ones you've got to reach up really high to get at, and, and we can't say it's too hard to do and not do it. Um, I want to open it up for questions in a second, but before we do that, Fatima and uh, to a lesser extent Mohammed, but I'll give you a chance to answer it too. So there's the 2030 vision. I want you to tell me what Saudi Arabia is supposed to look like by 2030 and what are the chances that this is going to happen. That's a great question, actually. I think by 2030, inshallah, we'll start to see the beginnings of a more robust, diversified private sector. Okay. Um, That's economic and economic. Economic. I think we'll also start to see a, a more um, dynamic citizen profile. And by dynamic citizen profile, I mean... Um, one that's more balanced with respect to having access to leisurely activities, uh, being more civically engaged, um, uh, and and what do you, I'm sorry, what do you mean by more civically engaged? Oh, absolutely, no, that's a great question. Sorry. Uh, so uh, the third, the nonprofit sector. So. <laughs> Uh, more engaged in volunteerism, more engaged in uh, contributing back to the society, um, uh, being more open to uh, providing services on strictly a volunteer basis as opposed to uh, for, for payment. So just civic engagement, basically. Um, and, and basically a more open uh, society that's still anchored within its own Islamic cultural values. Uh, so a, a, a balance, basically. Ahmed, what do you think? What's your, what, what is it supposed to look like, both in terms of uh, economic reforms and social reforms? And what are the chances? What will, it, what will it look like? And actually, just to come back to what rounding this off, to what extent is, the, is the, GC, the, the problems within the GCC going to affect the realization of uh, 2030? Yeah, just to start off, I don't think, um, I think that pretty much separate issues. Okay. But um, um, I think the most important part of Vision 2030 uh, is, is um, uh, to do with economic sustainability and economic diversification. Um, you know, Saudi can't be um, uh, beholden uh, to the oil price uh, for its um, uh, prosperity and sustenance. Uh, is this the idea? So is this is the, the I think I think this is the main, the main idea, for, uh, and and there are many ways to do that. I mean, there's a gigantic wage bill in Saudi Arabia. You know, government the number of government employees in Saudi Arabia is very high as a percentage of the population. Uh, investing in new industries um, uh, that diversify away from oil is, is something very important. You can see this with um, the offset um, uh, programs that they want to do with the new. Uh, uh, military contracts. You want to create a localized military industry. But um, even beyond that, I mean, um, uh, encouraging um, uh, small to medium-sized enterprises uh, and entrepreneurship in the country. I think it's something that isn't a luxury for Saudi Arabia going forward, but a necessity if um, uh, you know economic sustainability is something that uh, is at the top of the agenda. Maybe we'll get to come back around during the questions. To, so I want to ask. I think I want to know a little bit more about the plans for privatizing parts of uh, Aramco, and um, but maybe we'll come back around to that in the question section. So if you have, if there's anyone who has a question, um, and if you can hold on one second, I'm going to wait until I, I believe we have microphones here. Um, the gentleman over here in this row, and if you can identify yourself, please, and, and please do. Uh, keep my it name is uh, a question. 
Don Kirk, I've spent a lot of time as a journalist in, in Asia and not that much in the, not much in the Middle East. Um, but I'm just curious about the stability of that American, huge American base, which I understand is the largest American air base outside the United States. Uh, how stable is that in terms of uh, possible Islamic reaction against it? In terms, you, of you mean in Qatar? You mean um, yes, in Qatar? Yeah, uh, uh, of course. That's what we're, I thought that was what we were talking about. Maybe I'm wrong, but but uh, how stable is that base? If I may finish the question, how stable is that base in terms of our relationship with Gutter, and also in terms of the terrorist groups that might not appreciate the presence of that base in in Gutter? And in that context, I understand that Gutter is ordering more than ten billion dollars worth of F-15s. What are they going to use these F-15s for? Whom are they fighting? Saudi Arabia or the Emirates or 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 exactly who? Maybe perhaps Syria. Maybe perhaps you could address these questions. Well, they've, they've conducted airstrikes in, in Syria as part of the ISIS strategy. So the base is very secure. But when you land at the airport, you get in the bus and you draw all the curtains so nobody sees there's a bunch of Americans in this bus as you drive to this air base, which is probably 30 minutes away. And it's a every, – every, everybody in the bus is like, we could get hit on this thing. You know, because it's basically one military vehicle in front of you, one behind you, and a bus. And uh, so the base is very secure. The route from the airport to the base is not. Look, I just want to say something while, while it occurs to me. I'm not here. Uh, I, I don't want myself to get in the middle of a GCC thing. But I will make a little bit of a case for Qatar. Qatar is an important ally of the United States in many different ways, and especially in something that you and I, we've all spoken about, about, uh, you know, in Syria, to bring down Assad, to, uh, to certainly restrain the Iranians, try to knock them out of Syria, and to find some way also to get the Russians out of the region. And Qatar, frankly, has been helpful in that way when other GC sta GCC states have been less helpful. I mean, I'm thinking about the Emirates. The Emirates have not necessarily been <coughs> as helpful when we're talking about going after Assad and going after Iran. So again, I, I, I do appreciate the different problems that the Qataris have, have, have caused and the different issues going on, but this is actually, Mohammed. I mean, if you want to, if you want to address the, you want to talk about Syria for a second. Yeah, I mean, sure, they can make the case that they're helpful um, in the way that you described, but they're also at the same time giving Shia militias money. Okay. So it's right. It's very confusing. I mean, right. they have on this side and that. And I think uh, Qatar has presented value to the United States in the past as you know, sort of naughty Switzerland, if you like. Naughty, uh, naughty Switzerland. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean. Uh, Best way to describe it, I think. So, um, you know, they were asked to liaise with the Taliban. They were asked to hold meetings with the Taliban on behalf of the United States in order to get, bring into the United States. But they don't stop there. Then they go and liaise and speak to every other group in the region, sometimes for a reason, sometimes for no reason. Uh, and it gets very um, uh, confusing, and, and it, uh, it becomes an obstacle rather than um, uh, uh, an asset uh, when that happens. And the other problem is, uh, the Qataris act alone to a great extent in the region without speaking to intelligence services in uh, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, uh, Egypt, and elsewhere. I mean, Saudi Arabia didn't even know that they were <laughs> carrying $1 billion worth of cash in Tara. So I figured it out when it happened there. There's so. no coordination, say, on Syria. They like, well, look, we both have problems with the Iranians, so there's no coordination between the Saudis and the Qataris on well, something like Syria or... Look, the, the Saudis have stuck uh, with the CIA play, uh, playbook on Syria since the beginning, since day one. 
if there's a CIA vetted uh, group, we're going to work out with the CIA what to do. And the Saudis have been lobbying the Americans for a while to give manpads to the Syrian opposition. The Obama administration said no. Um, and then many people that are close to the administration afterwards said, why did you listen to us? But um, that, that's besides the point. Um, the Qataris, on the other hand, uh, have backed more problematic groups. I mean, uh, or, or uh, engaged with uh, uh, more problematic groups. Jabhat al-Nusra, for example. And that's, uh, to go to your point on Al Jazeera, I mean, when Jolani was brought in, uh, at, the, at that point he was, he was covered and anonymous. So, right. so the Qataris were trying to, you know, pressure uh, Jabhat al-Nusra to renounce its ties with Al-Qaeda with the promise right. of, you know, making it a more palatable group for international right. observers, a group that is worthy of, of uh, aid. And everybody who was watching that interview uh, on Al Jazeera was waiting for Jolani at any point in time to say, you know what, I break away from uh, Al-Qaeda. What he did was he renewed his bayat. And said, you know, I'm doubling down with these people, and I'm. Uh, so this is this is the problem. I mean, if Qatar is acting alone in, in Syria, thinking that it can manipulate these groups and 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 um, uh, uh, deal with them uh, unilaterally or just with the Turks, <coughs> then then that is an obstacle rather than um, uh, an asset. Uh, what when, are the when a regional approach, especially with the United States and Saudi Arabia, is necessary for any meaningful solution? What are the chances this gets solved, and what happens if it doesn't? Mike, I'll ask you too. But Mohammed, you start. What are the chances of this getting solved, and what happens if it doesn't? There are many variables. I mean, I think it's very clear that boycotting nations are prepared to to play the long game, and 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 that this. Which means what? The GCC falls apart, or what happens? I mean. I wouldn't say it would fall apart. It's, it would be weaker as an institution, um, that's for sure. Uh, but uh, <coughs> there are still economic measures that um, uh, could be taken by the UAE and Saudi Arabia. Um, but I think we shouldn't jump the gun. The Qataris have shown that they're willing to negotiate to a certain extent. Um, again, uh, for this to continue is not in the interest of any of the parties involved. Uh, but there have to be the right assurances for these uh, Gulf countries that, you know, Qatar doesn't pose a threat. It's not scheming behind your back. It's not trying to undermine you. That has to be established one way or another. Mike, you want to? Well, because these panels make a difference, uh, Qatar should just keep, do the good things and stop doing the bad things. And everything should be okay. Uh, right now we're at a stalemate. Uh, we basically had the, the Qatari defense minister today say that no more discussions will take place until the embargo is lifted. And Lavrov has said that he's happy to act as a third-party guarantor, honest broker in these things. Um, we're getting to the point where, you know, there were 13 demands, now there are six. I may be under, misunderstanding that, but it seems that there's, there's some, some compromise at least some softening of some positions. And, and it needs to be dealt with now. But again, you know, we, Secretary Tillerson just signed a, a statement of agreement, of understanding, uh, with the Qatari government about targeting terrorist financiers uh, and designated terrorists. A memorandum of understanding is not the same as. We need to get to something stricter, something stronger. Again, it's it's not like they have to hide in Doha. You can drive past the Taliban office. You can drive past areas where uh, these these U.S. designated terrorists uh, are in cafes and walking around the streets. They're not worried about things, and they should be a little worried. I mean, we we want governments to make it to where people that are doing these things shouldn't feel comfortable. Uh, 
walking around doing these things. And, and that's something we need to focus on again. Cutter can say, but look what we're doing. We need to say, do more. Right. Um, I it. believe there's another question over here. This gentleman right here. You could introduce yourself, please. Uh, Stanley Cobra, former Hudson person a long time ago. Um, I was struck, I'm looking at it now, uh, a statement by the IMF Executive Board on Saudi Arabia. One sentence. Most directors noted that Saudi Arabia has the fiscal space to allow a more gradual consolidation than envisaged in the fiscal balance program. That's a very unusual thing for the IMF to say. You're practicing too much austerity. Ease off on the break, especially since Saudi Arabia has huge budget deficits. Saudi Arabia recently, you know, did ease off on the break. Um, you know, we live in a revolutionary era. Could that be the concern here, that if there is too much austerity, it could cause political instability in Saudi Arabia? Um, so first of all, thank you for your question. Uh, here's, here's what I'd like to say about this. Saudi Arabia faces a PR paradox, and I've said this in, in, in different platforms. For decades, political economists have accused Saudi Arabia of being a rentier uh, state that's basically buying off its citizens and that there needs to be a diversification strategy to kind of propel the economy and make it more sustainable long term and to shy off of, uh, to shy off of subsidies. Two years ago, the country launched 2030 as a, as a long-term economic diversification strategy. Prior to the April, 23rd, the April uh, 2016 announcement of Vision 2030, the, the first transparent uh, budget announcements happened in, in January of 20, 2016 in Saudi Arabia. While, and it was the first time Saudi Arabia announced an allocated, um, uh, an allocated atom, uh, itemized budget, which included defense spending, et cetera. During that time, um, before, as a prequel to Vision 2030 announcements, subsidy reforms were being built out in tandem to address what people in the Western um, kind of framework are calling austerity measures. The truth of the matter is, is that subsidy reforms hit uh, people across the board, but at the same time, there were social protection packages that were built out to address the most vulnerable socioeconomic tiers. But subsidy reforms also impacted the, the higher kind of... Uh, the higher uh, upper echelons of society, for example, members of royal families that for, weren't paying, for example, electricity bills for a long time. So this was this was across the board. Um, so what, when I hear when I hear this, and there, I, I I kind of uh, get slight, slightly um, perturbed only because that it's it's uh, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So there had to be austerity measures or subsidy reforms that took place, and once they did, there were they were gradual. And, you know, unfortunately, God did not send down a reform book. <laughs> I wish he had. Uh, but there's no, there's no perfect kind of form, formula for reform. And so what I really appreciate about, um, about Saudi Arabia's approach to this is that it's a, it's a uh, implement and rectify. And so as implementation around subsidy reforms have taken place, so for example, the salary cuts, um, that was on the table much, uh, long before it was actually implemented. 
Once it was implemented in October of 2016, it was discussed way before that. Once it was implemented in October 2016, people were up in arms across the board, but it was maintained until the revised budgetary the revised budget came out with respect to where Saudi Arabia had hit with its deficit. And when there was a need, when uh, the leadership saw that there was no need to be that strict, it was reinstituted and rectified. So to, just to kind of uh, close the loop on this discussion, there's no perfect formula, um, but uh, Saudi Arabia is, is kind of uh, leveraging the avenues that it needs to leverage and then kind of eases off as it needs to. Mohammed, did you want yeah. to follow up? I mean, a couple of years ago, there was an IMF report that said Saudi Arabia would go bankrupt in five years. And then that quote has been used in every single media uh, outlet. And, and the reason they came to that conclusion is because they'd made a mistake in calculating Saudi Arabia's fiscal break-even oil price. Um, I think going forward, it's just not sustainable the way that Saudi Arabia is operating right now. The population is growing. Uh, people, uh, there is unemployment in the country. Uh, you're getting new graduates that need jobs. Uh, the private sector um, uh, isn't um, uh, going to be able to, uh, uh, you know, absorb all of these new graduates. Adding these new graduates uh, uh, to government jobs where uh, there isn't much productivity is just digging um, uh, yourself into a deeper hole. Um, so perhaps they're being uh, too austere and, and implementing too many austerity measures all at once uh, at the same time, but I think that's much better than, than um, uh, the alternative, um, if the alternative is, is just um, uh, continuing on, 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 on the previous MO. On the MO. There was another question over here, I think. Or, oh, okay. okay. Uh, gentlemen over here, if you can just wait for the microphone. Thanks. <coughs> My name is Anil Avigeli. I'm a consultant with the management consultant management consultancy firm here in DC. My question is to Fatma in relation to, and also to Mohammed if he wants to pick up on this, in relation to measuring the pulse of the society. And uh, you guys mentioned, specifically you Fatma, you mentioned that you know all you need to do is just look at social media. Uh, so the question is, um, is um, or are the authorities looking at social media as a measuring apparatus or do they have other sentiment measurement tools? And if so, um, how is that going to be affected with this new um, uh, cybersecurity rules and regulations and, 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 and the new, uh, what is it called, social media law that they implemented? Um, yeah. So that's, that's a good question. So I, I don't want to get into kind of confidential territory, but I think there are different avenues being explored with respect to measuring uh, public sentiment. Um, but from a very casual uh, kind of litmus test approach. Um, I've seen tangible examples whereby the um, the government actually uh, took a hands-off approach in, in allowing public discourse to play out in the in the social media sphere and across Twitter. YouTube is also a, a very tangible example that um, I forgot to reference as a means to kind of understand where public opinion uh, rests. Um, and it also um, it also allows the government to to normalize a policy before instituting it, which is what I had mentioned before. I think too, what's worth mentioning, um, at the risk of kind of going back to the the campaign, Saudi Arabia has its own um, 
Middle Arabia, if you will. So just like uh, the America, in the United States, there's a reference for Middle America. So there's a conservative base that, regardless of what policy that uh, would be instituted from a top-down perspective, you have, to under, you have to make sure that it will be sustainable and implement, implemented and sustainable from a, from a bottom-up bottom perspective. But one of the things that I wanted to mention here is that um, in the past, what we've seen is an advocacy model whereby the royal court, the council of ministers, the Shura council made a policy decision, used the media to get the narrative, the messaging out into the public space. That, that advocacy dynamic is shifting as we speak. Um, it's, it is a subtle percolation, but it, I, I, I would imagine in five years' time, we'll look back at this time and say this is when it started to happen, or maybe even five years before now, whereby kind of public discourse is leveraging kind of social media platforms, which ultimately, in some cases, it's not across the board, kind of impacts. Uh, and so to your question around measuring this sentiment, I think going back to the very first thing that I mentioned, there are avenues to explore that. Um, so I think, like any society, Saudi Arabia is is composited by a spectrum of opinions. Not everyone is on the far right. Not everyone is on the far left. And then you have everybody in the middle. So you have differing opinions around it. There, there are uh, uh, domestic businesses that are concerned, um, understandably, um, with respect to payments, for example, that took a while to, to get out. Uh, when, when Vision 2030 was initially announced, uh, there was a lot of speculation, and a lot of the speculation went back to continuity, so, which is now, now has been addressed with the new appointment of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. So, um, because it's a long-term strategy, and so that appointment actually uh, laid some of those uh, laid some of those fears to rest. Um, so, and then you have those who are skeptical, of course, and you have those who are fans and who are championing it. So, like I mentioned, Saudi Arabia is just like any other society in the world, and it has a spectrum of opinions. What is fascinating for me personally is seeing those opinions manifest in the public space in a country that's been deemed as kind of autocratic and not allowing that that kind of spectrum of opinion to exist. Can I ask you? I have to double check on the cyber law. Um, can you give me a little bit of background on it? Thanks. Thank you. So basically, the new law that you know, there's certain guidelines where um, when using social media, whether it comes to um, social, religious, or even kind of um, sexual content or anything else like that. And part of the part of the issues are uh, do not criticize government officials and all that kind of stuff. So how does that stand when it comes to people trying to give their opinion? And what's more important um, to measure that um, opinion or that sentiment accurately? Okay. So sorry, I know Mohammed, you want to say something. I just want to mention one thing really quick. So in terms of uh, cracking down on uh, public sentiment, uh, I think what we need to kind of, and this is a point that Michael had brought, had mentioned earlier, I think every society has a hard line when it comes to freedom of speech, even the United States. I think we saw that with Kathy Griffin and we saw that with Bill Maher, it happens. So Saudi Arabia has a similar line uh, and, the, and the press law basically stipulates that you can't kind of um, um, 
you ha dignitaries can't be defaced. Actually, anyone can't be defaced, frankly speaking, not just uh, I mean, public that, officials. I mean, we should make a distinction. Also, this is not a law in the United States. This cross would some people, not everyone, believe with the boundaries of bad taste. Understood. Uh, I mean, so. But my point is that everyone has a hard line when it comes to public sentiment. Can create a critical mass and, and draw that line. I do believe I, there's public sentiment. Absolutely, that's what I'm saying. When when different things cross the, you know, when different things. I want to. I just want to finish this one thought with this with this gentleman really quickly. But the inverse, this other side of the coin, also happens. So there was a journalist that was ga that was placed on gagged order a couple of weeks ago who went over the top with uh, with uh, placing favoritism on the king, and so he was uh, basically silenced because again, anything that's seen as disrespect disrespect can go both ways. Basically, um, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, but th there's no law against criticizing uh, officials. Uh, uh, there's no, uh, you know, clause that ever says anything like that. It's defamation. That's the the, the framework. Now, uh, there are defamation laws in Singapore. There are defamation laws in the UK. In Singapore, they're very lax with the way that they use defamation laws. That's pretty much the way that freedom of speech is, is limited in the country. They'll make anything defamation, if, even if it's not defamation. In the UK, you have libel laws that are very similar. But in terms of criticizing government officials, I think we've seen something that's unprecedented in the Arab world in general. I mean, every single uh, uh, policy implemented by some uh, ministers is, is made into a hashtag overnight. And, you know, uh, the way they smile, the way they acted in videos. I mean, yeah. the criticism of, of um, uh, officials in Saudi Arabia has become so exaggerated now on Twitter that uh, many would argue that in certain cases it's become an obstacle to these people doing their jobs. So I just uh, wanted to take issue with, with uh, the point about criticizing officials being illegal. I know you asked a question about cyber law. If you give me your card, I will actually look into it and get back to you. But uh, there's one last thing I wanted to mention. A couple, last year during a sports, uh, during a soccer match, uh, uh, a well-known uh, prince actually referred <coughs> to people of a specific region in Saudi Arabia as basically the throw-up of the sea, and he was placed on gag order. He could not use any more social media accounts. So anything that's seen as ripping at the social fabric, regardless of who you are, is immediately um, curtailed. I wanted to ask you something, uh, and then we're probably going to bring it to uh, conclusion, but I want to ask you something. You raised something very interesting, which I'd never thought about before. But, uh, of course, when you're saying, well, there's a middle America, there's, you said there's a middle Saudi Arabia. So what does that look like? It's I mean, seriously, I'm very curious to know, like, what's the, like, what are the different ideas? What are the different values? It's a I, mean, I, I know it's a long base. question, but. No, it's actually uh, not. It's a conservative okay. base that may not necessarily be ready for uh, um, immediate progressive reform, which is why, even though Vision 2030 is seen as this kind of um, uh, dynamic uh, strategy, it's still kind of being percolated and, and, and trickled into effect systematically, so that way it's absorbed. That's why we haven't seen women driving, for example. It's such a lightning rod issue. You can't do everything all at once. But again, for me, I go back to hearing public discourse. I think hearing the public discourse is an indication for what's to come. Very interesting. Um, Fatima, thank you. Mohammed, thank you. Mike, thank you. And thanks uh, to all of you for coming. And thanks also to Hudson Institute. Thanks very much.